welcome to the Fromer Travel Podcast. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you aboard for this ride. And we are going to start with Elaine Glusak. If that name sounds familiar, it's because either you're a New York Times reader where she's all over the travel page as their frugal traveler, or because you're a longtime listener to this podcast and show. We've had Elaine on many times because she's just the best. She knows what's happening in the travel industry, but more importantly, she knows how it's affecting individual travelers. So welcome, Elaine, to the Fromer Travel Podcast. Thank you so much, Pauline, for having me back. Well, you wrote an article. You wrote a couple. (laughs) You've been very busy. Uh, That caught my eye recently. It was called, Who Needs a Whirlwind Trip If You Can Take It Slow? Now, people have been talking about slow travel forever, and I always felt like it was more of a marketing term than a trend, but now it really seems to be something that's actually happening. Why are travelers actually slowing down right now? Yeah, you make a good point. Certainly, slow travel has been around for a while. Um, You know, whether it was marketed to, you know, as as a form of travel or just the way people traveled way back when, when they did the Camino de Santiago, as they still do now, walking across Spain. Sure. Um, but now I think the pandemic has sort of thrown its weight behind this movement. And a lot of people are responding to it. Some of it has to do with COVID. You know, there is sort of a requirement um, for your own health and safety and the, and those and those around you to be cautious about COVID. So in some ways you need to move slower and more deliberately. Well, let's 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 not gloss over that. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? I mean, just to get back into the United States, you have to be tested seventy-two hours in advance. So, if you're flitting hither and thither, it's going to be a lot harder to get that done. To find a place where you can get the testing done to make sure everything goes okay, right? That's right. That's right. So the testing requirements to return to the U.S. and then think about um, what you might need to go into another country. Um, So people that were doing safaris that involved like three or four countries, suddenly they're like, well, let's just do one because then we only have to go through one set of hurdles. Um, So that that is a a natural break. And and one reason people are traveling slower. And and I will say, um, this has been the summer of flight delays and cancellations. So in some <laughs> in other cases, like, you yeah. know, people are traveling slower because the airlines have forced them to. But really, we're talking about uh, an interest on the part of travelers to sort of view their travel through the lens of sustainability in some cases, thinking about how do I amortize my carbon footprint? Maybe I'm going to take fewer trips, but I'm going to take longer trips and go slower. So there's a lot of interest in human-powered travel. Think about like bike trips or walking right. trips. Well, you, you make a, a good uh, point in the article. You say that at the height of the pandemic, everybody could see what happened when we stopped traveling so much and stopped our usual way of living. I mean, you could even see fish in the canals of Venice. Suddenly things got cleaner. And that's affected a lot of travelers, right? Yeah, I think so. I think people could really, they could really see that 
what we're doing and how we're moving has an impact on the environment. And another sort of flip side of that sustainability um, sort of awareness is I think people also realized during the pandemic that sustainability is about following the money and keeping it local. You know, people, mm. you know, stayed home and but tried to keep their local pizzerias in business. And I think right. when you apply that um, sort of knowledge to planning travel, you think about, okay, well, how am I going to really support a community and make sure that the money that I spend stays there? So that's, I think, another impetus be t- behind slow travel. Right. And you were just saying that the way people travel has also changed. Uh, obviously, it's been a disastrous year for air travel, just <laughs> mind-bogglingly bad situations. In another article you wrote, I think you said something like 3% of all the flights were canceled in the month of July, which is uh, three times the normal rate. Uh, it doesn't sound like much, but it, 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 it turns into thousands of flights. So are people doing more train travel? Yeah, um, that is sort of a surprise um, that train travel appears to be more popular now. Um, I'm not saying that Amtrak is doing well. I mean, a lot of forms of commuting are still suffering as people sort of figure out, you know, how to safely get around. But, you know, Amtrak Vacations, which is the tour operator of the train company, they said bookings were up nearly 50% um, this year compared to pre-pandemic times. So people, you know, seem to want to go by train. And there was the new train that was introduced just last month in in Colorado that goes from um, Denver to Glenwood Springs. Um, And it's strictly sort of sightseeing. You know, it's a slow means of travel. There's not even Wi-Fi on that train. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's a, that's a big ask for consumers, but it's doing well. Yeah. People seem to want to drop out a little bit. And in Europe, I mean, I haven't been to Europe myself since before the pandemic, but the EU is calling it the European Year of Rail 2021. And uh, they are really trying to highlight the sustainability of transportation by a, by a long distance rail versus flying. Right. Wow. Uh, And I have to say in Amtrak's favor, they have been very proactive in throwing a lot of very good sales to try and get people back aboard the trains. Right now, they've got a 50% off sale for for autumn, which I immediately told everybody I knew about, especially in the Northeast Corridor, uh, just because the prices are so extraordinarily good. Yeah. And what a great way to look at fall color, you know, just sort of trundle by and not have to do the navigating. Yeah, absolutely. Now, other forms of transportation for travel are also doing very well. You talk about uh, companies that are doing biking and hiking tours. What's the scene there? Yeah, the um, those seem to be popular. And those are the kinds of things that people wanted to do or want to do during the pandemic. You know, they're outdoors. People feel safe outdoors. So companies like Backroads, which is a very big um, company that does multi-sport trips, they introduced this new division called Dolce Tempo, which is basically, I think that means sweet time in Italian, um, but taking your sweet time. So not as ambitious. You're not going to do 50 miles a day unless you want to. Um, But it's really designed for people that kind of want to like leisurely cycle a little bit and then maybe get to their resort earlier, hang out by the pool. You know, you still have that 
rich, in-depth experience of the destination, um, but you're not killing yourself. Right. Um, and it's, I think, apparently it's doing very well. They said all of their trips this year were sold out and they're adding a ton more next year. But that's, I think, also probably a level of fitness that a lot of people can do. So Yeah, if you slow down. I remember in 2019, all of the bike companies were touting their e-bikes. Uh, that that you wouldn't have to fully travel under your own steam. That the that the bike was electronic and it would pick up some of the slack, especially going uphill. Now they're just slowing down. <laughs> for those of us who can't keep up, and yeah. it's fascinating development. You also talk about a company called Travel Brilliant, and I thought some of their programs sounded pretty brilliant. That's actually Sojourn. Um, oh, Sojourn. I, I want to spell that for your listeners because it's unusual. It's S O J R N. Uh-huh. And their thing is sort of like doing um, study abroad for adults. So they have like month long programs where you go to one destination and let's say um, it's Athens, for example, and the theme of the trip might be philosophy. So the ancient Greek philosophers and you would live in an apartment and in Athens and you could go about your daily business. You could work from Athens and then I think weekly or semi-weekly, they would do um, group events that would be lectures or dinners um, where the group would sort of explore whatever the theme of that trip is. And so there's trips like, of course, you know, wine in Italy or Spanish language in Colombia. But it's, you know, for people that can work from anywhere, it's a great way to sort of like have it planned for you but also indulge your passions for that destination or learning. Yeah, no, it sounded like wonderful programs. And and uh, you hit on another uh, trend within this trend, which is a lot of people can now work from anywhere. And so that sent people to all uh, corners of the globe for extended vacations, which are by their nature, slow travel. Exactly. I mean, Airbnb, um, you know, certain destinations have just been explosive in terms of where people want to go and um, stay for periods of up to a month. Um, If you want to stay around Joshua Tree, for example, this is another story that I reported, you're going to spend about 50% more than you would have before the pandemic. So those places have been really popular. Yeah. Now, popular, but possibly more expensive. You had another article recently on the New York Times site and in their paper, uh, which the headline chilled my blood, (laughs) said (laughs) why your next trip may be more expensive. It seems like everything in life is getting more expensive. And travel for a while was the exception to that rule. Since nobody was traveling, there were these extraordinary deals. But that changed this summer. It's unclear whether prices will continue to rise, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry for that bummer headline. <laughs> it's like, oh no, really? This too? It, it's true that um, air, like like if you look at different segments of, you know, what where most of your cost goes, you know, air, lodging, transportation, a lot of things sort of rose in the summer with demand. In May, I think airfares were up 7% and then they went up another 3% in June. And we all paid a little bit more, which is not untypical um, for, you know, seasonal travel. But with the Delta variant, it looks like, you know, that people are are easing off on their willingness to fly. And so fall fares, which historically trend down as, you know, it's back to school season, 
are looking even lower. Um, and yeah. so the airline industry is sagging a bit also, right. you know, thanks to the lack of, of business travel, which also is, has been, you know, delayed by the rise of the Delta variant and the infections across the sure. country. But the key thing seems to be that demand has shifted to different destinations. It used yeah. to be that everybody wanted urban travel. And so hotel rates in cities were far higher than they were in less urban communities. And now that's flipped. Yeah. I mean, I find that very fascinating. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure you, you know, Pauline, you you know, the New York hotel. um, I write Sober's New York City. Yeah. So I I know know it inside and out. And it's been astonishing how much prices have dropped. Oh my gosh. So I, you know, I reported that the average in New York City right now is $205. Now, I don't, you know, readers might, I'm sorry, listeners might, might think, well, that's not cheap, but for New York, that's really a good deal Yeah. Um, versus for example, like if you want to go to the Florida Keys in August, the average was $408 for a room. That's, that's high. Um, Especially when you can, you can drink the air at that time (laughs) of year in Florida. It's so beastly hot. Oh, agreed. But anyway, (laughs) Yeah, wow. so it has flipped. It has flipped. Um, urban centers are still suffering from the lack of business travel. So there's a lot of good deals to be had there. Yeah. Um, and, a, you know, a lot of analysts are really predicting that New York, cities like New York, that are really reliant on big events and, and business travel are unlikely to recover in 2022. So this would be a really good year if you want to save some money to go to New York City. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, interestingly, the Washington Post did a piece on which places are safe to visit right now. And they featured New York because we are one of the communities that has really strict rules. Everybody has to be vaccinated indoors and things of that sort. Masking is really taken seriously here. So I can't remember if this was in your article. So I, I apologize if I'm catching you off guard, but I remember at the height of the pandemic, another strange travel entity or or travel trend flipped. It had always been that you spent less money to go to an Airbnb or other type of rental than you did to go to a hotel. And then I remember at the uh, height of the pandemic, a study came out showing that on average, Airbnbs were now more expensive than hotels. Uh, I think because people were so scared of being in crowded lobbies or packed elevators. They really wanted their own dedicated space when they traveled. Do you know if that's still the case? Yeah, no, that, that is still the case. And it's it varies by um, uh, the degree of, of the rise in price depends on the location. But on average, in the United States, um, those vacation rental homes are up 20% compared to 2019. So that's, that's really a big that's a really big increase. And then in places like I mentioned Joshua Tree or Park City, you know, you're going to pay more than like 50% more uh, versus wow. 2019. So yeah, people wanted to go to like Myrtle Beach and Cape Cod and those places that were, you know, lovely outdoor destinations where they had the control of their own unit and could um, prepare their own food and things like that and not have a lots of other strangers around and they were willing to pay for it. And I think I think I I think I reported that in July the rental occupancy in places like Myrtle Beach and Cape Cod was over 80% which is really really high. Yeah, that um, is. So that's why those those rates were up so much. And that is 
And that should continue. Um, it's sort of the way people want to travel now. I think people yeah. got very comfortable with mm-hmm. um, with uh, rentals. I, you know, people that weren't converted have been converted. Um, yeah. So that's a challenge to hotels. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's going to shift the industry dramatically. Well, thank you so much, Elaine. As always, it's been so informative and fun speaking with you. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Pauline. It's great to talk to you. Our next guest wrote a fabulous article for the newspaper, The Independent. It's called Searching for Dracula, a Yorkshire hike to sink your teeth into. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Peter Elia. Thank you very much, Pauline. Glad to be here. So I have a feeling a small minority of our listeners is probably saying, Yorkshire, if you're looking for Dracula... Wouldn't you go to Transylvania? What is the connection between (laughs) Yorkshire and Dracula? I think your listeners will definitely be on the right track because I think most people think like that as well. Bram Stoker, who wrote the novel, originally came to Whitby in Yorkshire in 1890 to uh, have a bit of a rest. He was a, a writer and an actor as well. And he fell in love with Whitby because he thought, oh, this is a very spooky kind of village. And um, he went to Whitby Library and started researching to write a horror novel. And he came across a guy called Count Wampula from <laughs> Romania. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Not goodness. a great name. No, that's a um, terrible name. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, Bram Stoker, um, he never visited Romania. I think he got as far as Vienna in Austria. But he thought this could be something really good for his readers because they probably wouldn't have heard of uh, Count Wampula, who was uh, originally based on uh, Vlad the Impaler, which some of your listeners would know about. But he needed a setting, and he realized that the setting that he was in would be very conducive to write a novel about Dracula. The reason being is that Whitby uh, is very famous for having an abbey which is like a skeleton abbey. So it's mm. um, it's ruins without, imagine, no windows, no roof, but just ruins. Uh, and these ruins are from the 13th century. Mm. Uh, it has a very spooky graveyard. Uh, it has a very oldie worldy harbour. So all the trappings that you would expect a vampire to uh, be very much at home in. And he was also inspired by a shipwreck that had happened in the harbour, right? Oh, you've done your homework, indeed. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so five years before he visited, so he visited in 1890, so in 1885, I think the boat was called the Dimitri, a Russian vessel, uh, capsized just off the Whitby coast. And he, all he did was just tweak the name, I think, to the, the Dermiter. So uh, that's what's written in the novel. And he thought, hmm, th- this could be really interesting. Whitby is a very kind of shipwreck-heavy type of place known for uh, lots of capsizing anyway. So I think uh, he thought, or oh, w- wouldn't it be great if Dracula arrived from Transylvania to English shores uh, in, a, in a capsized vessel? As the only survivor of... As of the only the survivor, shipwreck. indeed. Right. Somewhat survivor, <laughs> because he's already dead. So you decided to walk there. You know, we started today's show with a talk about slow travel. 
uh, and how that has become very, very popular uh, mm -hmm. during the course of this pandemic, because people are realizing both how rough traditional travel is on the environment, uh, and also because people want to slow down. And you visited Whitby uh, as part of a walk along the Cleveland Way. Can you tell us a little bit about its charms and why you decided to do this on your own two feet? Yes. Um, so for your listeners, uh, the Cleveland Way is uh, it's quite a famous hike within England. It takes place in the county of Yorkshire. It's 108 miles, which wow. even for me is a little bit too long because I only had a few days. Um, so I decided to just walk a couple of sections, which conveniently for me included all the place names that take place in the novel of Dracula. So it starts from a very quaint village of Staithes in the northern part of the county and ends up in Robin Hood's Bay, which is also mentioned in the book as well. But yes, it ties in very nicely with your slow travel theme because um, in order to get a flavour of the, the literary charms of the area, one must have to take it slow and really kind of uh, immerse yourself in the kind of haunting qualities of the area. Well, not only the literary charms, I would think also the natural charms, because this walk goes along the coast, right? So it, the, the, the scenery must be spectacular. It does. It does. Um, so, yeah, I think the literary kind of stuff is the icing on the cake, but um, it's beautiful in its own right. On one side, you'll have um, lots of sheep grazing in, in lovely kind of chocolate boxy English green hills. And then on the other side, you'll have this really diverse kind of roaring you know crashing waves onto onto shorelines and uh, a very kind of rugged and romantic setting as well so a real kind of juxtaposition of flavors now when you get to whitby you decide to take a ghost tour or a, a walking tour of the area those can be hokey but it sounded like this man was genuinely spooky the man who led your tour he was. He was. Not for the faint-hearted, Pauline. Uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul Wittering. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but he may have been an ex-actor. He just had one of those uh, fantastic, deep, booming voices, but equally a great storyteller. Um, so it was a, a haunted walk that had Dracula at the heart of the theme, but uh, it also tells us a lot more of why Bram Stoker fell in love with Whitby. Whitby was already known for its ghost stories, prior to his visit. So, for example, uh, there was a, a young lady uh, called Mary, famous in the area as the baker's daughter. And uh, one day she accidentally went into the bakery where her father worked and um, father wasn't there. So she thought she'd bake the bread herself. She mm. put the bread into the fire oven and unfortunately burnt her hair and then went running around the town screaming until unfortunately she passed away. And uh, people claim in Whitby still to this day that they hear the screams of Mary along the cobbled streets of Whitby. Oh, wow. So that's just one of many stories that you hear around the town. I'm not sure I want to go to Whitby now. <laughs> that I know. Sounds <laughs> I hope I haven't put you off. Travel in well, the daytime. I, that, that's, uh, that's what yeah. I would do. I, Well, I thought it was very interesting too that the guide told you that Bram Stoker named many people in his novel after the citizens of Whitby. I mean, how did they feel about that? That Were some of them the victims of Dracula? Very interesting question. So, for example, uh, Mr. Swales, 
who is the first victim of Dracula. He's an elderly gentleman uh, that is often seen walking on the hilltops near the cemetery. Um, there's a Mr. Swale's uh, gravestone, uh, which would have preceded Bram Stoker. So uh, many uh, Dracula fans think that he just took the name from the gravestone uh, and added it to the book. In addition to that, there's also S.F. Billings, which was the lawyer of the day uh, when Bram Stoker was there in the 1890s. Um, he's actually named directly as Dracula's lawyer, who is the procurer of soil from mm. Transylvania, which is shipped in <laughs> to Whitby. And as Dracula fans will know, uh, in order to survive as a vampire, you, you need the soil in your coffin uh, to sleep very well in the daytime. Right. <laughs> so, yes, he, he, <laughs> uh, it, it's quite unusual, actually, because normally uh, books are influenced by, but um, you've got a nice mixture in the novel of real people's names and names that have been tweaked slightly. Right. Um, which I think makes it even more spooky than, than it already is. Just so uh, our listeners can get a picture of where Whitby is, what is the nearest major city to it? Do you know? Okay, so it is it's, it's equidistant, I'd say, between Newcastle, which is uh, like in the northeast of England, and the city of Leeds. Hmm. So um, I, I'm... I'm not sure how how well known these cities are in the United States, but basically it's not near any of the really kind of well known cities. I, I guess internationally, right. um, it is it is in the north, like Liverpool and Manchester, but it's uh-huh. it's on the other side. It's on the eastern uh-huh. side, and Liverpool and Manchester on the western side of. Well, the- that that must give it a very non touristy. Well, no, but you you kind of. Uh, say that the the towns, some of the little fishing towns are are, are a bit precious. It sounded mm-hmm. like in your description. Is it a very touristy area or not? It's not a place I've ever been. Uh, yes and no. So I think for for people in the north of England in particular, uh, it's definitely a go to place. Um, separate to to Dracula, it's uh, a very beautiful oldie worldy town mm-hmm. uh, and lots of great walks uh, going in and out of Whitby. Uh, as well. It's also known for apparently having the most famous and best fish and chips of the lot in England. So uh, English wow. people like their fish and chips. So, uh, is, and also, is it I think still tourists do. Delivered in a cone of, of newspaper or no? If you search hard enough, you can definitely get that. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think so. So giving away my age. Yeah, it's 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 still going and, and even if it isn't real newspaper, um I have seen it with uh just on printed <laughs> A4 oh sheets of paper. So just just to give you that uh that old time classic feel. feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well it sounded like a, a classic walk in your article. Many congratulations and thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh my pleasure, Pauline, and thanks for having me. Wasn't Peter delightful? I should say that I gave him an opening to talk a little bit about why he was hiking (laughs) to these places, and he he didn't pick up on it. But then after we spoke, he said, oh, by the way, can you mention that in the last 25 years, I've hiked in over 50 countries? His adventures include completing the Arctic Circle Trail solo in Greenland. 
tropical glacier hiking in Peru, trekking with nomads in Kyrgyzstan valleys. And if you want to follow all of Peter Ilya's adventures, he has a really terrific Instagram account. Who uh, It's called The Man Who Hiked the World. And he has 80,000 followers. Who knew? It makes me wonder how soon this type of adventurer, like Peter, will be able to get out there again. Uh, I don't want to end this podcast on a down note, but it's been a pretty depressing week for travel. The European Union at the very beginning of the week announced that Americans should be on a restricted list. The number of infections per capita have grown to what the EU probably rightfully considers a dangerous number. Now, the EU is an umbrella organization for nationalities that have sovereign rights. So the fact that the EU said that does not mean you can't go to Europe. However, in the days since the EU made that pronouncement, Italy, Bulgaria, Sweden, and the Netherlands have all put in their own restrictions on Americans. They range from really, really strict ones. Uh, You cannot go to Sweden or Bulgaria for non-essential travel purposes. If you're an American right now, they don't care if you've been vaccinated. The door is shut for those two countries. Italy is taking a more, what's the word, Uh, measured stance. They are saying that unvaccinated Americans have to quarantine if they go there. But once they quarantine, they can come in. Vaccinated Americans have to take a test 72 hours before arriving, and it has to be negative, obviously. And then they have to sign up for a contact tracing app so that the Italian government can know where they are in country. The Netherlands have an interesting uh, kind of uh, in-between stance. They have said that tourists from America, and not just America, also Germany, Hungary, Israel, and a, a lot of other countries, will only be able to enter Holland if they're fully vaccinated. Can't blame them for that. But they're also going to have to quarantine which I think probably puts the kibosh on a lot of Americans' plans. I mean, you don't want to spend your vacation in quarantine. So for now, uh, travel to the Netherlands is off for Americans for and, and to other places too. <sighs> it's hard to know what to say. On the one hand, I fully understand why this is happening and why travel has to stop. On the other hand, it's it's heartbreaking because it's hard that a non-human virus is controlling our lives in this way. But that that's the way it is. And it's the most important thing right now is to keep people safe, is to be a good neighbor, to by masking up by maybe staying closer to home until this passes. I I take hope from the fact that in countries that saw a surge with the Delta variant 
It tended to last around two months. And then mysteriously, uh, the infection started to lessen. And we're, we're about at the two-month uh, mark right now. So I'm, I'm really hoping that can happen and we can get back to the life-affirming, mind-expanding activity of travel. So with that in mind, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage, whether you're traveling or not. We wish you well at Fromers.com. And I should say, everything I just spoke about is on Fromers.com. So if you want the details, that's where you'll find them. Thanks for listening. See you next week.